Thank you, David, and for all of uh, those who've been especially at the forefront of leading this event, conceiving it, believing it would be possible, then laboring for years to bring it to pass. It's been quite an encouragement to me to be a part of it and to see you worshiping the way you do and hungry for the Word of God the way you are. So may your tribe increase. May your numbers multiply. May uh, South Africa and all the other lands represented here feel the spiritual reverberations out from this place and all of its future manifestations. So thank you for letting me be here. Pray for um, the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization that starts tonight in Cape Town. We'll be going there this afternoon and 4,500 representatives from 200 countries, the most diverse gathering of believers ever in the history of the world, all with the focus of how to help the global church keep its focus on evangelizing the unreached peoples of the world and challenging the world with the message of Jesus Christ. So, as God brings it to your mind, pray that God would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we ask or think. Let me pray one more time. Father, in this last message I ask for climactic help. I ask for a gift of prophecy that would cause words to come out of my mouth that would be anointed in such a penetrating way that they would go into hearts and do things utterly unexpected and glorious for your name and for the unreached peoples of the world and for unreached neighborhoods in the cities. I pray for humility I pray for love to abound in my heart for these people and for you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would blow. You blow where you will, like the wind. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So are all who are born of the Spirit. So come and do your mysterious, transforming, regenerating, sanctifying, hope-giving, pride humbling, Christ-exalting work. I ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. My life's mission statement and the mission statement of our church is this. I exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And sometimes when we... It's it's on the wall of our our church, and I say it everywhere I go. And sometimes people ask, um, don't you think since the the first commandment to love God and the second commandment to love people are first and second, that love should be in there somewhere? I exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And my answer is, This sentence is the definition of love. For people. So where we're going now is, I've said 
you all and I exist to share in and to share God's passion for his glory. So we're going to the third part now. You exist to share God's passion for his glory. I exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. That is what I mean by loving people. That's why I'm here. If God were to show up or an angel were to put a microphone in my mouth and say, state your mission of love in this hour. I would say, I am here to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And I think the angel would say, proceed. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't do it. So, love for people at its apex is doing whatever you can, even at the cost of your life, to bring them with you into the enjoyment of God's passion for His glory. That's what love is. And all the other things we do for people by way of social service or physical healing is secondary. They will go to hell if we don't do more than that. And people that are going to hell because we don't help them enjoy God's glory, that's not love. So, the first thing we did, give a little summary, is to talk about God's passion for His glory. All over the Bible, God does everything He does to to display and uphold His glory. And then we saw that this is not megalomania. This is love toward us because we are designed by God with hearts made to find fullest pleasure not in ourselves but in Him. If God withholds Himself and His infinite glory from us, and does not magnify it to us, He does not love us. God is the one being in the universe who must uphold Himself and His glory as a way of loving us, because it is the one thing that will bring us everlasting and full joy. If I were to do that, I would be wicked. Only God can do that and be virtuous. If I said, look at me, be satisfied in me, worship me, I would be wicked. But if God says, look at me, be satisfied in me, enjoy me, be happy in me, honor me, treasure me, that's love. Because you were made for that. If he were to offer you anything else, like a perfect mirror where you liked everything you saw, he would be cruel to you. The implication we saw of that is that in this act of enjoying him, being satisfied in him, treasuring him, he is made to look good. God is most glorified in you 
when you are most satisfied in him. We saw it in Philippians 1.21, and you can see it in experience. I'll give you my favorite illustration, okay? I told Noel last night I was going to do this. I love to do it in her presence. This is an illustration of the truth that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. All right, Noel and I have been married for almost 42 years. And let's suppose that on one of these anniversaries, I come home and I do something unusual. I ring the doorbell. I don't usually ring the doorbell on my own home. And I have bought, oh, let's say, um, 12 expensive, long-stemmed red roses. And I ring the doorbell. It's the evening of our anniversary. And she comes to the door. She's surprised, looks at me with a puzzled face, and I pull the roses out and I say, Happy anniversary, Noel. And she smiles big and says, Oh, Johnny, why did you? And I say, It's my duty. <laughs> now, I have told this story a hundred times all over the world. People always laugh when I do that. Why did you laugh? I mean, this is really, really deep. Why did you laugh? You should have. Not scolding you at all. You should have. I fear the audience that doesn't. <laughs> but I just said something wonderful. I said, I'm doing duty. Don't you think duty is a glorious thing? Soldiers should do their duty. Husbands should do their duty. Pastors should do their duty. Duty's not a laughable thing. But you should have laughed. Why? Well, the answer will come clear if we, if we do a rerun of the doorbell. So here we go. Reel it back in. Ding dong. She comes to the door. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, I couldn't help myself because nothing makes me happier than to buy roses for you. By the way, why don't you go get dressed? I've arranged for a babysitter. We don't need one anymore, but I used to say that. <laughs> I've arranged for an evening. You go change. We're going out because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. Never in a million years would she say, you are so selfish. All you ever think of is what would make you happy. You'd, you'd rather do nothing for you than spend the evening with me. Nothing makes you happier than to be with me. You are so selfish. Now, here you are laughing again. Don't you know that selfishness is a wicked thing? And you are laughing. And I just told her that nothing makes me happier than to be with her. I mean, why are you laughing? This is so selfish of me to talk like that. Or, or is she glorified by my being satisfied in her. Is the highest compliment you could pay to a wife to say, of all the choices, of all the treasures of this evening, you're best. Because you satisfy me. Do you get it? So, if you didn't get it from Philippians 1.21, get it from the Rose story. Okay? <laughs> 
God is most... This is just a picture, right? Husband and wife picture of something really big. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Do not fear when I tell you, which I now say is the next point in the series... I drew out the implication, therefore, you should pursue maximum and eternal satisfaction in God for the rest of your life. Whatever it costs, hand cut off, eye gouged out, lose your life, whatever it costs, go for broke. Don't settle for anything less than maximum and eternal pleasure in God. Don't, Don't ever feel like that is selfish. The word selfish is a bad word, and it should be a bad word, because it ordinarily means exalting your own benefit at the expense of others. That's the opposite of what we're doing here. We are seeking our satisfaction, which now in this message is going to be shown to spill over for others. And I'm going to argue in this message, you can't love others if you don't pursue your own joy in God all the time. You can't. I mean, I, I, have, I have finished message one and message two kinds of messages and have people be so far from understanding that they will draw the inference, well, if God's seeking His own glory all the time and you're, sa- you're seeking your satisfaction in Him all the time, where's that leave everybody else? going to hell and you don't give a rip because you're all satisfied in Jesus and he's all into himself. And, and I'm, I shake my head. Oh, my goodness. So that's where we are right now. What about other people? So my, my point in this message is uh, you can't love other people if you are not finding your deepest joy, your highest pleasures, your most eternal satisfaction in God, manifest in Christ crucified and risen. So let's try to see that in the Bible. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have a Bible, and if you don't, just listen carefully. What I'm looking for in this text is, I want to know, first of all, what love is for people. Most people think they know what it is to love other people, and they don't. Because if you leave God out of the picture, you don't love people. Don't care what you do for them. Don't care if you lay down your life for them. Because that's what Paul said. Though I give my body to be burned and give all my goods to the poor and have not love, I am nothing. Give all your goods to the poor and give your body to be burned and have not love. Is that amazing or what? You can be a martyr and you can be an an ascetic and give everything away to the poor and not love people. So obviously that requires some thought. Like, where's God? If you don't give people God, you don't love them. (laughs) Eighty years is nothing, nothing compared to eternity. And without God, without Christ, without the blood, without the gospel, 
There is no love. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is a description of love. Let me give you the context. I'm going to read the first four verses of the chapter. Then I'm going to drop down and read maybe verses 7 and 8 to show that it's love. The situation is that Paul is writing to the people in Corinth. Corinth, you know, is, is down here at the bottom of the peninsula. That's Greece. And back then, this was called Achaia, and the northern part was called Macedonia. And he had already been collecting an offering for the poor saints down in Jerusalem up here in, in uh, Macedonia. That's Philippi and uh, Thessalonica and Berea, those cities up here. And they have experienced something amazing in giving. And he tells that story in the first four verses here, writing to the Corinthians to motivate the Corinthians by what happened among the Macedonians. That's the context. And he does it in such a way that it is a definition in action of love. And I want to know Paul's definition of love, not mine, not yours. I don't care about yours, I don't care about mine. I care about the Bible's definition of love. So here we go. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has, give, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, the poor saints that Paul's collecting this, this offering for. That's amazing what just happened there. It, it's rare. Now, why do I say that's a description of love? Look down at verses uh, 7 and 8. But as you... You Corinthians excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this, not as command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, namely the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. Get it? They excelled in whatever it was, and then he calls it what it is. And I want also your love. Okay, so he's just defined what happened in this amazing verses 1 through 4 as love. So what is it? Let's take it a piece at a time and put the pieces of love in place so we know what we're called to be in Johannesburg, South Africa, America, all over Africa, around the world. What are we called to be like? We want you to know, brothers, verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So, Paul shows up and he preaches in Philippi, preaches in Thessalonica, and as he preaches, the grace of God arrives. The grace of God arrives through the gospel. 
What did it do in Philippi? We get a bigger glimpse there than in Berea or Thessalonica. It saved Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to the word. That's what it means when the grace of God arrives. The grace of God describing the way the grace was purchased in the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. The grace was purchased by the blood of Christ. He rose from the dead to vindicate all who believe will have their sins forgiven. He's preaching this to this group of women by the river. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And she says, my Lord and my God. And you have the first member of the church, a businesswoman in Philippi, second member of the church is a demon-possessed young girl. She's walking around saying, these people are the spokesmen of the God Most High. They're getting on Paul's nerves, even though they're telling the truth. And she's making money for the people she's working for because she's a Zeus-sayer. Then Paul turns around and rebukes the devil that comes out of her. Bang. She doesn't make money for them anymore. She's a believer. you got the second member of the church, a demon-possessed girl. Third member of the church is the jailer, because they throw Paul in prison because he's making a, a scene. And, and, the, and God shakes the whole prison with an earthquake, another gracious act. And, and the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in Jesus. And he's saved. And he, he goes and gets baptized in the middle of the night. And now you've got three members of a church. What a church, right? A businesswoman, a demon-possessed girl, and a government employee <laughs> who, who was about to kill himself. So he's got suicide, suicidal tendency anyway. What a, isn't the church wonderful? I mean, that, that's the kind of people that ought to be flowing into your churches, right? That's the grace of God. It showed up with tremendous power in Macedonia. Okay, that's verse 1. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, things didn't go better for them. We see that especially in Thessalonica. That things didn't go better for them. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Okay, just stop there. Grace showed up and saved people. Affliction began to increase in their life and poverty didn't go away. It says so right there in that verse. In a severe test of affliction... And their extreme poverty. So what good is the gospel, for goodness sakes, right? Increases affliction, leaves poverty. Short term, anyway. And the answer is abundant joy. <laughs> for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. I know that you were called of God because your joy in the Holy Spirit increased while affliction increased. That's the mark of an elect person. Increasing joy, like in the parable, you know, where you sow the third or second seed and it sprouts up with joy and then the sun comes out, poof, it's gone. Joy is no proof of election. But joy in the midst of ongoing affliction... Something's happened. Something miraculous has happened. And that's what we see here. So, grace came down, joy came up. Remember what we're describing here. Love. This is the root and origin and nature of love. Now, third observation. Finish verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed 
in a wealth of generosity on their part. All right, so here's my answer to the person who says, Piper, you've just told everybody God seeks his own glory. You've just told everybody to seek their own happiness in God, and you let the world go to hell. No, that's not the way it works. This is the way it works, right here. I've told them that God comes in his grace and offers himself to them as an all-satisfying treasure through Jesus Christ. They see it. The Holy Spirit opens their eyes. Joy, in spite of affliction and suffering, overflows in a wealth of liberality. And verse 8 calls that love. So, how shall we define love? Here's my definition of love on the basis of these verses. You test it. Love, for people, is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. That's my definition of love. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. I think that comes straight out of these verses with hardly any change at all. I I just would... If you don't think that's a good definition of love based on these verses, you catch me on the way out and say, no, a better one would be this. Because I don't know a better way to define love, at least on the basis of these verses, than that. So, do you think I'm overstating it to say you can't have that kind of love without that kind of joy? That's, that's what I'm arguing for. That the first two messages of this series are necessary for you to be a loving person. That if you try to do some kind of self-denial thing that says, I don't need to be happy in God to love other people. My question is going to be, what are you going to invite them into? Your gloominess? Your misery? Your, your depression? Your discouragement? Your, <laughs> you're finding God boring? I have a boring, non-satisfying. Join me! I don't think so. I don't think so. Sometimes the objection is raised. It sounds like you are making love, at least in part, into an emotion or an affection, since it's the overflow of joy drawing other people into it, even if it costs you your life to do that. Are you sure you want to define love so that this big component of it is an emotion like joy? My answer is yes, but the objection is is sophisticated. It, It came to me as a junior in college in an apologetics class in this form in a book called Situation Ethics by Joseph Fletcher, a very bad book. And... His argument was, love cannot be an emotion because love in the Bible is commanded. So it must be a decision and an act of will that you can obey when it's commanded, even when you don't have any feelings. 
Okay, let's let that sit on you for a minute. That's the argument. Now, I was at, I was 20 years old, and I had been brought up in a Christian home, and I didn't know a lot except the fact that my mom and my dad read the Bible to me every day for 18 years. And therefore, I had a sniffer. I call it a theological sniffer. I didn't have a theological brain yet because I hadn't studied in any kind of formal way, but, but I had a sniffer. Falsehood s- smelled bad. I couldn't explain why it was false at the moment, but it just, something's wrong with that. That argument smells to me. And I, that's an incredibly valuable gift to have a, a theological sniffer. Most of you Bible-saturated, older, non-formally educated people have very good sniffers, probably. You're, you're better detectors of error in a preacher than a PhD who's got all this education, and, and sniffer's dead. So I was smelling this and saying, something wrong with this argument. Love cannot be an emotion. You cannot command the emotions. Love is commanded. Therefore, love can't be an emotion. Case closed. Love's a decision. I just saw the people in my class said, Oh, man, that's great. We don't have to... I said, What's wrong with this? Well, it just hit me like a ton of Brits. This premise right here in the middle, emotions can't be commanded. That's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's all over the Bible. Emotions are commanded all over the Bible. I wonder, you don't look like you believe that. <laughs> Gratitude is commanded, Psalm 100. Hope is commanded, 1 Peter 1. Joy is commanded, Philippians 4. Sorrow is commanded, Romans 12. Compassion is commanded, Ephesians 4. Fear is commanded, Romans 11. Contentment is commanded, Hebrews 13. And on and on and on. The Bible is filled with the commandments of God for us to have emotions we cannot turn on like a spigot. The premise is wrong, Joseph Fletcher. Therefore, the conclusion is wrong. At least the conclusion is illogical. And I would say there's plenty of evidence that love includes the emotion of passion to spread the joy of God's grace into the lives of others. But here's, here's a question, a very practical question. Suppose there is something you're commanded to do and you're to do it with joy, an act of love, and you don't feel the joy. Should you do it? Be specific. It would be an act of love, if all were in place, for you on a Sunday morning, say, in your local church, to give money during the offering. And you've got this strong desire to get a new MacBook Pro, or iPad, or iPhone 4, or whatever's cool and hip here. Um, and it's going to cost you $500, and you've been saving, and, and there's this special plea being made at church for this mission and this project and the regular ongoing ministry, and you're sitting there 
with your checkbook in your hand, not wanting to give to the church because it delays the iPad. Okay? So you don't want to. There's no joy in this at all. So here comes the offering plate. You got about a minute and a half to decide what to do here. What should you do? Now, my solution to that, because there are hundreds of such things in life, are there not? Um, my solution is this. Number, here, here's what you do. Number one, and this is, the, this is a very different strategy than the person who says, emotions don't matter, write the check. Duty is what matters. About the roses. God's watching. Do not give reluctantly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You're not feeling any cheer at all in this, should you give. So my advice is very different than write the check, it doesn't matter what you feel. It's the right thing to do. I don't ever talk like that. I don't ever say to my people, just do it. I don't like that phrase, just do it. I don't care if Nike has it or anybody has it. I just don't like it. The just is all wrong. There's a theology before do it, and if you don't get the theology before do it, and the repentance before do it, and the joy before do it, you're a legalist. So, here's what you do. Number one, you see the offering plate coming, you look at your heart, there's no joy, you repent. That's the first thing you do. You say, I am so sorry, God, that my heart is not here. I don't have any desire to give. There's no cheer or no joy in it. I am sorry. That's what you do first. Second thing you do is you pray. God, restore to me the joy of love, the joy of giving. Bring the cheer that's commanded of me in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. I don't have it. I can't make it. I can't do it like a water spigot. I could write the check, but I can't make the joy. You have to give it. Would you please give it, oh God? That's what I do all the time. I'm praying for God to work on me. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can't make it happen, but you ask for the fruit. Third thing you do is you trust a promise in the Word of God. What promise would you use at this point? You'd use something like, maybe, Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And you let, the, you let the promise grip you. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Goodness and mercy will pursue you all your days. All things work together for those who love God and are called, called according to his purpose. Seek the kingdom first and everything you need will be added to you. you just Pile up promises in your heart and the Holy Spirit sets the match of His flame to the kindling of the Word. And if He answers your prayer, joy begins to happen through faith in the promises of God. And the fourth thing you do is write the check. Either because the joy is there in glimmer... Or with this attitude, Father, it's not here yet, but I believe that it's right to do. I'm sorry that my heart is not here yet. In the writing of it, would you grant me 
this joy. And you write the check. And then you thank God. That's very different than, it's my duty. I brought the roses. I brought the check. I write the check. I've done my duty. I've done the worship. That's what worship is. Doing the right thing for God. It's so different. So different. I'll give you another illustration. This is just so so right on the ground. All right, I'm a pastor. I get called to go to crises. Get a phone call. Uh, let's call her Mildred because she's old. Mildred, Mildred, Mildred is, is in the hospital. She's had a heart attack. I don't know, they don't know if she'll live. I get a call at home. I didn't want this call. I'm tired. It's the middle of playtime with my kids or whatever. And, and I've got to go. So I'm in my car driving and I, I'm not loving it. There's no joy and overflow here. I'm just doing my duty. It's what pastors have to do. I'm on my way. So I'm walking through this process. God, please. She needs more than my physical presence. I can't tell you. I testify before God. I can't tell you how many times as I get off on the fourth floor of Abbott and start walking down the hall, 4906 not knowing what I'm going to find in the room, and I enter the room, and there she's lying there with her eyes closed, and, and I, I go over and I put, my, I put my hand on her arm. Now, it's okay to laugh here, but don't feel obliged at all, um, because this is the rose story in other form. I put my hand on her arm, she opens her eyes, now, she's old. Old people always say this. Young people never say this, but old people always say this. It's just so great. She said, Oh, Pastor, you shouldn't have come. You're so busy. You didn't need to come. Old, younger people said, You should have been here a long time ago. But, but old people are humble and... And then if she does what my wife does, she says, Oh, Pastor, why did you do this? What if I said to her, I didn't want to, but I have to. It's my duty to be here. I'm a pastor. Now, the, the first illustration with the roses was meant to illustrate what love towards God is. This is to illustrate, I'm going to ask you this way. If you were Mildred, would you feel more loved if I said that I didn't want to be here, but I'm your pastor and I have to be here. It's my duty. Or if I said, Mildred, can I be honest with you? This has happened so many times. Can I be honest with you? I got the phone call and I didn't want to come. But you know what, Mildred? As I was coming over here, I was praying and thinking about you your ministry at the church, and as I walked in here and saw you and put my hand on your arm, <laughs> there welled up in me a sense that there's not a place on the planet I'd rather be than sharing some hope with you right now from my devotions this morning. Something like that. Not a place I'd rather be. See, there it is again, my selfishness. I think... In order to love people authentically, you can't love them begrudgingly. If they sense in you, this is begrudging. He's here begrudging this time to me. 
Instead, I think what genuine love requires is that your heart arrive, joy come up, and begin to expand itself to draw her in so that you can honestly say to her, my joy is increasing, Mildred, as I draw you into it. It's an honor to be here. It's a joy to be here. It's an expansive feeling of soul to be with you as grace comes out of my heart and joy comes out of my heart. Can I just share a promise or two and then, and then the Lord brings to mind things that he thinks she needs. So I don't buy it, Fletcher, uh, Joseph Fletcher. I don't buy it that love does not require a dimension of emotion, namely the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Um, I'm just debating here what to leave out because I don't want to keep you longer than I should. Suffering for others is going to be necessary. So don't hear me saying, you've got to be happy with no, no down feelings and no pain in order to love people. It'll, it'll almost always be the opposite. It'll be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Most acts of love are painful. You've got to drive to the hospital. You've got to go to a hard place. You've got to deal with a hard person. Most acts of love are painful. And that's not a contradiction of saying love is the overflow of joy in God. So I think I need to show you that. And the way I'll do it is to take you to Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll look at a few verses here and, and wrap it up. And I think this sequence of verses in Hebrews is simply amazing because most of us think of Hebrews as a a book about Melchizedek, and it's hard to understand, and it's just so full of the Old Testament and complicated in its understanding of the atonement and the new covenant. And we say, oh, practically, what am I going to do with this book? Well, in the next seven or eight minutes as we close, you will see what to do with this book. So let's start in chapter 10, and here's what I'm after. I want to see in Hebrews a biblical way of understanding how joy in God produces suffering love for other people. Suffering love. Because almost all of it is suffering. Verse 32 of Hebrews 10. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Okay? So the first thing that happened when you got saved, were enlightened, is that you suffered. So don't, don't pitch Christianity the way the prosperity gospel people do. Pitch it with honesty. It will cause trouble in your life. A hard struggle and suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Okay, get the picture? In the early days here... Uh, they became Christians. Some of them were reproached and, and persecuted, and others were partners with them. Now, in what sense were they partners with them? He tells us. Verse 34, For you had compassion, so you who are partners, had compassion on those who were in prison. Okay, some of the group had been put in prison already because they had become Christians, and some hadn't. And those who hadn't had to decide, shall we go underground and disappear and let them rot in the prison, or shall we identify with them and, and show compassion? 
And, and they, they face the question, but if we do that, they'll know that we're Christians and so we may get thrown in prison. And what about our kids and what about our, our witness outside and the spread of the gospel? And, and a lot of arguments would come why you shouldn't do it. Well, here's what they did. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That might have been official plundering or it might have been mob violence like Graffiti on your walls and stones through your your window or, or whatever. What we don't know for sure from the language here whether it's official confiscation or whether it's just mob devastation. But whatever it was, it was painful and you wouldn't want your house wrecked. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So two things to observe. The word joyfully and its ground. I confess before you that perhaps my most frequent sin is grumbling. Which is the opposite of this verse. If my house was trashed because I went to visit somebody in the prison, this would be hard, right? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Joyfully. I mean, let's picture it. They head to the prison. People see what they're doing and where they came from and what house they've gone out of. And they, they torch it. And it goes up in flames. And as you're going to the hospital, you're looking over your shoulder and you're watching your house burn. And what do they do? Let goods and kindred go. They sing. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. We're going to the prison. That's Christianity. Joyful that they were counted worthy to suffer shame and persecution. It is so radical, it seems beyond doing. Chapter 11, verse 24. Oh, 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 I almost left out the most important thing. Where did they get the wherewithal to do it? Because, I'm at the end of verse 34. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. That's what I mean by joy in God. When they contemplated what was being lost here, they realized they have something that's going to restore and be better later. Namely, they're going to be with God. He's going to meet every need and every loss will be restored. I, I believe, I was working on this in my devotions in my heart the other morning. I believe that if I could trust God for this truth... Every single loss I experience will be repaid to me a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. I would stop grumbling about my losses. And by losses, I mean things like uh, your wife says something to you hurtful. Or your colleague 
criticizes you publicly. Or your husband puts you down. And any, what I mean by loss is anything that frustrates you. Anything that disappoints you. That's where grumbling comes from, right? My will, my desire got crossed. It got frustrated. And I'm, 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 I'm back. I'm, I'm responding. I'm, words or face or tone or shrug or something. My, my whole being is attacked. That, that's the opposite of this. These people aren't attacking. They're singing. Because they knew that they had a better possession and abiding one. So this, the practical thing would be to take all the messages that you've heard here, all the glorious things we've sung here, and say, God, help me. Moment by moment. This is what, why Paul Tripp is going to be so helpful to you next year. Moment by moment, in the present, believing the promises of God. Right now, in this moment where this little annoyance happened and you're about to grumble about it, believe this loss will be paid back a hundredfold by Jesus who meets all my needs in the kingdom and will have an eternity to be repaid for every single loss that we've experienced here. Now we can go to chapter 11 and try to move toward a conclusion. Chapter 11 of Hebrews Watch Moses say the same thing. Verse 24 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Choosing it. I'm going to choose mistreatment. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's weird. He considered the pain and the suffering and the reproach with the Messiah in loving Israel by leading them greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Exactly the same argument. You got a choice. Stay in Egypt and have all the worldly comforts and pleasures for 80 or 120 years. And then hell. Or suffer these grumbling people in the wilderness and die on the mountain and not get to see the promised land just Because you count suffering with the people of God and with the Christ greater wealth than all that. How can you do that? Because he looked to the reward. So, young people. I know there are more than young people here. Older people already know this. Young people. Living for the reward of the presence of Christ and his friendship with you in His presence forever, should be cultivated. Now, pie in the sky, by and by, makes you radical in the present. I hate it when people talk about the hope of glory as Lifting people out of this world and making them so otherworldly they're of no earthly good. It's the opposite. If you really saw 
what was coming your way in 50 years. If you could just see it, you would be the most sacrificial, risk-taking, lay-your-life-down lover on the planet. You wouldn't go sit under a tree and wait. That would be proof of unbelief. Oh, get the reward in your head. Get it in your heart. Be stunned by its infinite value. Realize how short life is. How great it's going to be on the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 12, verses... Maybe just verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross... How did Jesus perform the greatest act of love that has ever been performed for human beings? How did he do it? The text tells us. Anybody want to say it back to me? For the joy that was set before him. I could just, you know, close the Bible, let's go home. If anybody ever tells you being motivated to love for the increase of your future joy is selfish. You should get a real serious look on your face and say, don't talk that way about my Lord Jesus. That's what you should do. Because they're going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, not talking about, I'm talking about you, not Jesus. No, you're not. You're talking about verse 2 in Hebrews 12. Because my Lord Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And that's what I'm doing right now in talking to you. Because you're hard to talk to. But I know that in my talking to you, my joy is going to increase as I draw you in to my experience of God. And I do invite you in. I want everybody in this experience of joy in God. I think Jesus, as he wrestled in Gethsemane and as he hung on the cross and could have pulled his hands off and called 12 legions of angels and wiped out all of his mocking persecutors, I think what kept him there was, God, I love your people. And I can hardly wait till I am surrounded by millions and millions of them worshiping me and magnifying me and glorifying me and I reach the consummation of all my loving and saving work by having the joy of their praises ascend in your presence. Something like that. I'm sure it was deeper and more wonderful, but that word means something. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And we'll close with chapter 13, verses 13 and uh, maybe 12 and 13. So chapter 13, and I hope what you're seeing is a pattern. Chapter 10, 32, chapter 11, 24, chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 13, verse 13, exactly the same argument. This is what Hebrews is written for. All the theology, all of Melchizedek, all the New Covenant, all the atonement is written to make this kind of people. And I'm ending in the next minute or two 
And, and our whole longing, Conrad and I, is be this kind of people. You would rock your land. Don't be run-of-the-mill, middle-class, ordinary Christians that look just like the world. Be this way. So here it is again. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Let's start over. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Okay, you get that? Okay, come on. We're going to walk out of here in five minutes. Come on. Let's go outside the camp, outside the gate. That, that's Golgotha, right? Let's join Jesus. He's out there suffering for us. Let's go with him. Now, how are you going to do that? Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Don't we? What do we care about whether Johannesburg praises us? It crucified Jesus. Minneapolis crucified Jesus. New York, Cape Town, London, they all crucified Jesus. What do we care about those cities as to whether they accept us? What we want is the city that is to come. And if we are confident in the city that is to come, we'll have an amazing courage and wherewithal to go into the urban centers of the cities that crucified Jesus. Outside the gate here is any place where it's dangerous, any place where it's uncomfortable, any place where it's hard, any place you might get crucified. Let us go with him. Outside the gate. I'm done. Just a word of summary. You exist to share in, and now I've tried to persuade you that you exist to share your joy in God's being God, God's passion for his own glory. Jesus Christ paid an infinite price for you to enjoy this and to empower you to increase your joy by including others in it at great cost to yourself. So with Conrad and Bewe, I say, I beseech by the mercies of God. Lay your life down, your whole life, as a spiritual act of worship. Worship, treasuring Him, valuing Him, being satisfied in Him so deeply, the reward so firm, the city so secure and so beautiful that here you are the most dangerous, radical, free, fearless, sacrificial, risk-taking lover in your city. Let's pray. So, Father, for the sake of the nations all over Africa, for the sake of the neighborhoods all over Johannesburg and Pretoria and Springs and Cape Town, all over 
the neighborhoods and all over the nations, would you, for their sake, grant to us a sight, an all-satisfying sight of the city to come, the reward to come, the joy that is set before us so that we are willing to endure the cross and despise the shame and follow our Savior outside the gate. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.